turn to Romans 11, the final passage of the final chapter of Paul's wonderful exposition of Israel's future. Romans chapter 11. Christians talk weird. I don't know if you've noticed that. Before first service, a a group of us were standing right outside the door, and we were just commenting on the worship yesterday at the men's breakfast, and and one brother says, man, God showed up, and and he did, by the way, it was amazing, but I, I, I found myself thinking about what it would be like if someone who didn't speak Christianese was listening to the conversation, God showed up. I thought that you said that God was everywhere all the time, where did he go, and then why, and, and I should be sensitized to this. From, from the time I was saved, I remember going to my mom, my mom who was Lutheran, she was raised in the church, but, but I had a different understanding of salvation. And I said, Mom, I'm born again. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. You were born 28 years ago. I was there for it. It hurt. <laughs> and she never really did fully, that should have made me careful. But, but, you know, you get, you get used to saying certain things certain ways. Oh, Mom, I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Say what now? <laughs> or, you know, this is happening and that's happening, you know, in, in, in my life. And, uh, you know, I just, I just need to go to the cross. I don't want to know about that part of your life. I, I don't know exactly what she thought I was talking about, but... She was mom, and I decided just, just, we'll let it go. We'll talk about other things. But we talk weird. We, we do. To someone who's not around us all the time, we speak this strange language of Christianese. You know, in the garden, we transgressed. But in grace, the Almighty sent the begotten to be our propitiation so that we can be justified and, and have his righteousness imputed to us. What garden? What law, what, what's a propitiation or an imputation, and, and, and who's justified doing what to who? We were sinners. God sent Jesus to die in our place. He treated Jesus as if he were us. He rewards us as if we were Jesus. Why didn't you say so? And that's not me being try, trying to be high and mighty. That's not me smug and condescending this morning. Because a lot of times, I know, a lot of times I'm the one who needs to be reminded. And last, week before last, somebody did. Week before last, somebody rolled up and said, you keep saying God's not done with Israel. And I said, well, that's because he's not done with Israel. Okay, but, but you keep saying it every week. God's not done with Israel. God's not done with Israel. When, when God takes up again with her, what happens? What does he do? What do they do? And my first reaction was, Psh, everybody knows that. We talk about that every week about that. Yeah, on Wednesdays. <laughs> on Wednesdays, we're going through Isaiah, and we can't not talk about that. On Sundays, person had a good point. I've kind of been taking it for granted. God's not done, but we don't all know. We don't have the same, we don't have a shared understanding of how the story ends. So, sorry about that. And, and I'm grateful for the person who called me out on that. Don't hesitate to do that. Don't hesitate to ask questions or to point out errors or omissions, because if you're wondering about something, so are 20 other people. They're just waiting for you to go first. So go first and bless those other 20 people by asking, hey, I don't think you said what you meant to say, or I don't understand what it is that you... Bless them, bless me by letting me know I've messed up so I can fix it. So as we all wish to say, as we finish up Romans 11 this morning, that's what I want to try to do today. Paul's coming to the end of what he has to say about the future of Israel. We're going to listen to him, but he's going to leave us hanging a little bit. So we're going to keep going, and we're going to use what he has to say as a springboard to look at what Scripture in its entirety has to say more fully about God's future plans for his chosen people. Lord, this is important. This is important to you, so it's important to us. You've told us so much about this in your word. Help us to see it. Lord, help me to speak it clearly and intelligently and in a way that that, that does your will, Lord, that penetrates our hearts, that changes our thinking, 
that helps us fall more in love with you, a God who loves us so very much. Help us see that love and respond to that love by your grace and for your name. Amen. Okay, don't do that. When we left off last week, Paul was talking about how you and me, Gentiles, most of us, have been grafted in to God's promise to Abraham, Romans 11. We're not grafted into Israel. That's a common misunderstanding. We're grafted into God's covenant with Israel, his promises to Israel, and the opportunities and privileges and ministries that go with that. We're grafted in because Israel rejected that blessing temporarily. And when they did, they made room for us. Israel is today separated from the fullness of God's blessing for a season. But we're picking up where we left off, verse 23, but only for a season. Hey, there it is. They also, he's been talking about Gentiles, Now he says, they also, Israel also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. If you walked away from last week saying, you know, I really thought that we were grafted into Israel, this should tell you that that's not exactly right. Because he's talking about grafting Israel back in. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense for Israel to be grafted in to Israel. Israel's going to be grafted into the Abrahamic covenant grafted back into God's promises and Paul Paul asks why does that blow your mind for if you were cut verse 24 out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree He's saying, you were a bunch of wild olive plants just growing uncultivated, unfertilized, untended out in the forest. The greater miracle is that God was able to graft you into that channel of blessing. If God can do that, surely it's a lesser miracle. Surely it shouldn't blow your mind that he can graft Israel, who was originally there, back in. Verse 25, though, he says, slow down, and he says, stay humble. I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. This mystery, we understand, is a technical term, something that was concealed in the Old Testament, gloriously revealed in the New Testament. He said, okay, as your eyes are opening to this, don't get all prideful, don't get all boastful. Don't lord over Israel, because you were enemies of God once too. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Yes, blindness in part has happened to Israel, but not forever. And not completely. There are still some Jews who are saved. There's a Messianic fellowship right around the corner from us. Messianic synagogue. Verse 25, it's happened partly. It's happened thoroughly, but it hasn't happened forever. It's happened temporarily. Verse 25, the blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Underline that, we're going to come back to it. But on the other side, until something happens, on the other side of that, whatever the fullness of the Gentiles is, we'll talk about it. On the other side of that, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And that shouldn't blow your mind because God has been saying that all along. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul knows that this sounds epic and unbelievable and unimaginable and unreal to his readers. And so he's doing the thing that he does where he answers his readers up in Rome. He knows what they're going to say and he responds to them. And Paul says, I know. You're thinking Israel rejected their Messiah and you're right. Handed them over to be crucified and that's true. But God said that wouldn't be the end of the story. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. God made promises to Israel. Even before Israel was Israel, God made promises to Abraham. Promises that were unilateral. Promises that were unconditional. And God keeps his promises. Yes, Israel rebelled. Yes, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And why, Paul is wondering, do you resent that? Why would you deny them that? God was faithful to love you. Verse 30, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these that have now been disobedient, Israel, that the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. When you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. When you were enemies of God, Jesus came for you. How can you resent him doing the same thing for his people Israel? But there's Paul's readers up in Rome saying, but how can he be that good? How can he be that merciful? Oh, the depth of the riches, Paul says, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. However good we think God is, he's better. However gracious and merciful we think God is, he's more. For who has known the mind of the Lord, verse 34? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. But that leaves us where we started, right? Leaves us where we've been for the past, what, six, seven, eight weeks? God's not done with Israel. We know that. We've been saying it over and over. God's got a future for Israel. But Paul hasn't told us exactly what that future is. He hasn't told us why or how or under what circumstances God redeems and restores Israel. Paul's indulging in a little Christianese himself, if we're honest. He's assuming we know the answer. And we do. Or at least we can. Because he told us, verse 25, the future of Israel is a mystery. And a mystery is something concealed in the Old Testament gloriously revealed in the new testament it's not confusing anymore or at least it doesn't need to be if we look at old testament scripture with new testament eyes we can see we can know we can understand god's plan for israel and so that's what we're going to talk about this morning the 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 plan began in the days of abraham isaac and jacob and it continues through joseph and moses and Joshua and Caleb in the time of the judges, in the time of the kings, in the time of exile, in the time of return. But we're going to pick up the story 2,000 years ago when God sent his son to be Israel's Messiah, when God sent his son to redeem. The rest of the study today brought to you by the letter R, if you're taking notes. John 3.17. We know John 3.16, but John 3.17 says that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. We were worthy of wrath. We, we were condemned under the law. According to God's justice, we deserved hell. But God in his mercy sought to forgive. How to fulfill his justice and his mercy at the same time? The answer is Jesus. He sent Jesus to die in our place, to satisfy his justice, so that he could extend mercy, which we've said many, many times was God's plan all along. The cross was not a backup plan. The cross was not an ambulance sent to the site of a wreck. Oh, wait, humanity fell. What do I do now? No, it was God's intention from the time he brought the universe into, into being. God created us knowing what it would cost, knowing what it would cost him. And he created us anyway. And he sent his son to redeem us anyway. And he sent his son to offer redemption to Israel first, Israel said no. Jesus was met with rejection, which also was not a surprise. Just like the cross wasn't a surprise, just like the cross was part of God's plan from the beginning, Israel's rejection of her Messiah was not a surprise. It didn't leave God stunned, grasping, grappling for a plan. didn't leave God asking, what do I do now? He knew that this would happen. And he had prepared for it. That doesn't mean that it wasn't heartbreaking. I had a funeral here yesterday for a woman who endured more surgeries than any four people I've ever heard of. Procedure after procedure and amputations and, and all kinds of things. So when she died, it wasn't a galloping shock to anyone. People were more surprised that she had actually endured as much as she did. It wasn't a surprise, but it was heartbreaking. So too, when Israel rejected her Messiah, it wasn't a surprise, but it was heartbreaking. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. 
And in Matthew 23, we've read this many times, he, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've, you're doing it again. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect them, to nurture them, to love them. But you were not willing. You refused to let me. And now look. Look what you've done. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus pronouncing judgment over Jerusalem and by extension Israel for rejecting him, for rejecting her Messiah. That wasn't something that God compelled. It wasn't something that God ordered or ordained Israel rejecting Jesus. But it was something, and this was last week, right? It was something he was prepared to use. He knew what Israel was going to do. He knew what he was going to do next. Set them aside for a season. Okay, you're not going to see me for a while. You'll see me no more until. And now I'm going I'm to distance myself from you and I'm going to turn my attention to the Gentiles. And is it going to be that way forever? No, it's going to be that way until you repent, until you acknowledge that I was who I claimed to be, the Son of God sent to die for your sins. Until. And it turns out until is a long time. When Paul is writing, it's 20 years or so after the fact. You and I sitting here this morning, it's 2,000 years or so after the fact. 2,000 years of Israel resisting the gospel, in large part because they just they can't see it. They refused to see it when Jesus was walking among them, so God has blinded them. Today they can't see it. God has given them, we read last week, a spirit of stupor, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. And that continues to our day. Yes, individual converts, here and there. There are Jews in the body of Christ. But by and large, Israel continues to resist, continues to resent, in fact, the idea that Jesus could be their Messiah. Because, because, they, couldn't, because they wouldn't see, because they refused to see, now they can't see. And for many years, the church couldn't see. Not because of God, but because of their lack of faith. For many years, the church believed and taught that Israel was never going to see. They were scattered as a nation in 70 AD, and, and, and along with being scattered forever, they're going to be blinded forever. That was the teaching of the church for centuries. After Rome sacked and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, that's the end. It's over. No backs. Because no nation that ever ceased to be a nation was ever revived and restored as a nation before. And so the, the belief, the teaching of the church was, Romans 11 can't mean what it seems to mean. Paul can't be saying what it sounds like he's saying. Now the regathering of Israel to the land in the 20th century should have remedied that thinking. It shouldn't have been necessary to remedy the thinking. The church should have had the faith to believe that God says what he means and means what he says. But even through lack of faith, seeing Israel regathered in the land should have reminded the church, and for much of the church it did. There are outliers today, though, and oh, it's so frustrating that refuse to see what's right in front of them. God's promises. Among them, God promises, Ezekiel 36, 24, that when he regathers Israel, not if, but when, in the very same passage, in fact, in the very next verse, he says, when I regather Israel, I'm going to forgive and restore Israel. I'll take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Pause. The people who are, who are diehard clinging to the idea that God is done with Israel, has no future for Israel, if you ask them, what do you do with that verse, they say, well, that was Israel coming back from exile. Doesn't work. Because Israel was captive in a nation. They were captive in Babylon. This is nations. This is countries. So God is saying, hey, when I do what I'm going to do in the first half of the 20th century... The next thing that I'm going to do, the next event on my prophetic calendar for Israel, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that's never happened. 
The fact that the first part is true, the fact that verse 24 is true, has come true miraculously, should persuade us that the second part will also miraculously come true. The first part has happened. The first part of the prophecy has been fulfilled. The second part is going to be. And and you and I see that, I hope. We're confident in that. Israel doesn't. Israel refuses. Israel Israel doesn't see it playing out that way. Why? Because they refuse to see Jesus. The only way back to God for Israel or anyone else is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not Gentile, not Jew, not male, not female, not slave, not free. No one in any time or any place. No one comes to the Father except through me. But today Israel is sitting in that part of Isaiah 53, in that place where they say there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. Yeah, we heard all about Jesus. He's got nothing that we want. And, and, and he proved that he wasn't the Messiah by being crucified. How can the Messiah, how is the one who is supposed to save us from our oppressors, end up dead at the hands of our oppressors? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Israel hasn't figured out yet that he was wounded for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities. They haven't figured out yet that it's by his stripes that they will be healed. Israel today is essentially a secular nation. They claim a relationship with God. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll say we're God's chosen people. But like their ancestors, practically speaking, functionally speaking, they're really far from God. They're not depending on God in any way, shape, or form. What did God caution the leaders of Israel centuries ago? Don't multiply three things. Don't multiply Gold, horses, wives. By which God meant don't rely on your economy, don't rely on your military, and don't rely on political alliances, which were often cemented, anchored by the exchanging of wives. Today, Israel depends on all three, economy, military, and alliances. The day is coming, the Bible says, when Israel will depend on number three a whole lot more than she does even now. The Bible says the day is coming when Israel will rush into an alliance. And that turns out to be a watershed. That ends up a turning point in the future history of Israel. Look back at 1125, Romans 1125. That part that I said to underline. When the number of Gentiles has come in. That's when everything changes. That's when God turns his attention from the church back to Israel. Israel is blinded for a time until until the number of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? That's a poetic way of saying when the church age ends. There is a point where the last person that God intends to be saved during this dispensation, when God says, okay, the last person that I've ordained to be saved during the church age is saved, when that number of people added to the church is complete, The father says to the son, okay, go get your bride. We call that the rapture. We're snatched up, we meet Jesus in the air, and we go on a honeymoon for seven years. And I don't have time to fully develop the doctrine of the rapture this morning. If I'm freaking you out, grab me afterwards and we'll talk. (laughs) But with that, the church age comes to a close. God removes the church. He removes Jesus' bride from the world. He turns his attention back to Israel. That puts us here, except that this is a little bit mislabeled because the rapture of the church is not the beginning of the tribulation. We believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. The rapture happens before the seven years where God begins intensely to deal with Israel again. But we don't know how pre-pre is. Minutes, hours, days, years One of the best prophecy minds I know, Tommy Ice, thinks it's two or three years. I don't know how he gets there, but he's sure he's right. And whatever it is, 
the rapture of the church happens, sometime immediately afterwards or a ways afterwards, Israel rushes into an alliance. Something happens to make Israel rush into a treaty that she'll later regret. It's an alliance brokered by a coming world leader that promises peace and security for Israel. But Isaiah 28, 15, if we go back to that last slide, Israel later characterizes it as a treaty made with hell and death and falsehood. And we can see how Israel could get drawn into that. Israel is surrounded by neighbors who at different points in the last 75 years have all vowed to wipe Israel off the map. Some of them are currently neutral because they've been smacked by God a few times and they've decided it's better to join them than to beat them. Some remain openly hostile. The most hostile against Israel is Iran. Iran increasingly being drawn into a relationship with Russia along with, wait for it, Turkey. The Ukrainian war, when, when, when the Ukrainian war broke out, the West rushed to, to level all kinds of economic sanctions against Russia. And for a while, we read headlines about the impact it was having on Russia. Not so much anymore, because what people who want to do business with Russia are doing is they're using an intermediary. They're using Turkey. Oh, you can't sell arms and munitions to Russia. Fine, I'll sell them to Turkey, and Turkey will sell them to Russia. What's interesting about those three nations, some of you know this, those are the three nations that head up a coalition described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that comes against Israel in the future, only to be turned back by God. We don't know when that attack happens. There's a popular theory that it happens somewhere right around here, somewhere proximate to the rapture of the church, and that's what incentivizes Israel to enter into this alliance. It's, it, it, it gives Israel an incentive to, 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 to enter into a treaty for peace. I've got some problems with that theory, but for our purposes this morning, it doesn't matter. Maybe it is the Ezekiel 38 and 39 attack. Maybe it's the threat of that attack. Maybe it's something different altogether. Something prompts Israel to rush into this alliance that they will later regret. Because at the halfway point of that seven-year period, the halfway point of the seven-year treaty that Antichrist brokers, Antichrist breaks the treaty, because during those three and a half years, he goes from an up-and-comer to a true world leader. And from that position of power, three and a half years into that seven-year treaty, he betrays Israel, more than betrays him. He shows up in Israel's temple and says, Worship me. Forget your God. I'm your God now. Worship me. Pause. What that requires is sometime between now and then Israel to rebuild her temple. That's not as far-fetched as it seems. If you travel to Israel, the Temple Institute has almost everything ready they could start sacrifices and offerings and worship and observances tomorrow. They have all of the implements and the vessels and the garments and they've trained priests. They've got one or two things that they're still looking for. Other than that, the only thing that they really need is a temple. And the only thing standing in their way is a mosque. So what happens? Is it destroyed in the war? Is it part of the treaty that Israel gets to build her temple alongside? We don't know. We know that three and a half years after entering into the treaty, Antichrist walks into the temple and breaks the treaty, demands to be worshipped. Jesus talks about this. Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about the abomination of desolation. When he does, he's quoting from Daniel chapter 9. Then he, Daniel calls him the prince who will come, but Antichrist shall confirm a covenant, a treaty, with many nations, including Israel, for one week, for a week of years, seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. What did Jesus say? Now your house is left to you desolate. little resonance there. Even until the consummation, until the end, which is determined, there's an end point to this, is poured out on the desolate. There's the word again. Halfway through the tribulation, Antichrist walks into the temple, announces, Israel's now been outlawed. You don't get to worship your God anymore. 
and launches into a wave of persecution, a campaign of persecution that makes the Holocaust look like a Sunday school picnic. By the time Antichrist is done, two-thirds of the world's Jews are annihilated, which obviously sends Israel reeling. And, and that's not the only thing, because that's not the only thing that's going on. At the same time that's going on, as at the same time that, that, that persecution begins against Israel, the whole world is shaking. Because everything that we read about in Revelation is happening. The famine and the pestilence and the boils and the hailstones and water turning to blood. It's the plagues of Egypt all over again, except on a global scale. It's going to be nothing the world has ever seen. Again and again, the Bible says so. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Jesus. Jesus says, if the days weren't shortened, the whole world would, would be extinguished. Like nothing the world has ever seen. But Israel survives despite Antichrist's best efforts, and despite the willingness of the world to jump on board. Antisemitism always seems just closer than, than we want to believe it is. Despite Antichrist's best efforts and the world's willingness to join him, Israel is decimated, but not destroyed in the tribulation. Because that's how God planned it. Because that's what God has promised. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that's God's intention. God says this a bunch of different places, but clearly in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, alas, for that day is great, that day, the day of the Lord, that future period of time beginning with the tribulation, the day is great. There's none like it. And it's the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation goes by different names. The tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, all talking about the same seven years. But he, Jacob, but he, Israel, but he, God's people, shall be saved out of it. God's got two goals for this tribulation, for the seven years. One, he's going to punish the nations for their dis disbelief. Two, he's going to chasten Israel to repentance, except chasten doesn't start with R. So we're going to say he's going to reprove Israel to repentance. Punish her enough to convince her to change her behavior. Daniel 9.24, a couple of verses above where we just were. Seventy weeks are determined for your people in your holy city. This is Michael talking to Daniel, so we know he's talking about Israel. Seventy weeks are determined. Seventy weeks of years. With six goals. Finish the transgression. Make an end of sin. Make reconciliation for iniquity. Those three things have already happened for us. After 69 years, Jesus entered Jerusalem and at the end of the week died for the sins of humanity. 483 years, 69 weeks of years to the day Jesus walks into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry. We celebrate it in another couple of weeks. But Israel has not entered into that yet, has not received that yet. Israel's transgression is ongoing. Her sin is continuing. Jesus has made reconciliation, but they haven't accepted it. That happens at the end of the 70th week, the last seven-year period, the seven years of tribulation that we've been talking about. Once that happens, the rest of God's plan can happen. Still Daniel 9.24, everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. The kingdom can begin. Jesus can return. He can set up his kingdom on earth, but not until... You'll see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It happens in that order. Repentance has to happen first. And in the tribulation, <clears throat> again, in that seven years, that 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, God's pulling out all the stops. Regional and global catastrophes, unprecedented persecution, people wondering if it's the end of the world. Because God is pulling out all the stops to get people to look up and consider Jesus. It's a time of unprecedented tribulation. It's a time of unprecedented evangelism. God is still not trying to destroy the world. If he wanted to destroy the world, he would. It would be like that. He's trying to save people out of the world, especially Israel with an unprecedented effort to reach the world. Revelation 7, we read about 144,000 witnesses, Jewish evangelists, sealed and protected by the Holy Spirit, going out to declare the gospel. Revelation 11, we read about two witnesses, supernaturally empowered to share the gospel. I think they're Moses and Elijah. You might disagree. Whoever they are, they're superstars. 
and Revelation 14. An angel flying from one end of the heavens to the other, declaring the gospel. It's, it's the ultimate carrot in the stick. Chastisement with one hand, the gospel with another. And some of Israel is reached. Some of Israel repents. Some of Israel believes. Isaiah 10, we shouldn't be surprised. Isaiah 10 says, It shall come to pass in that day, day of the Lord, time, of pure, time beginning with the tribulation, that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's where we get the phrase, remnant of Israel, the believing remnant, the faithful remnant. Those who, first of all, survive persecution, and second of all, believe on Jesus and call on him to save. Get the picture, the, the whole time, persecution is increasing. Antichrist armies are advancing. This remnant fleeing, running for their lives. Which makes sense, if, if Satan wants the Jewish people dead, how much more so does he hate and want to destroy Jewish people who believe in Jesus? So Matthew 24, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, when that happens, when you see the abomination of desolation, run, run now, run fast. And a lot of verses suggest that they'll be running out of Israel to Petra, to the fortress city in Jordan, immediately to the east. Jordan manages to maintain their neutrality during this time. Scripture says that God protects those lands and I think protects them so that this remnant has a place to flee and be under his protection. You can disagree, and some people do. I, I, ask me, I think that's where the remnant ends up. And, and if they're not believers when they get there, they're going to be believers soon after, because I'm not the only one who believes this, this theory that they flee to Petra. Petra is stacked with gospel resources, tracts and videos and Bibles and commentaries, all in anticipation of this remnant of Israel fleeing there. And anyone who, who, who doesn't understand the gospel when they get there, there are resources today, there are resources waiting. Israel fling that's believing remnant, crying out to the Lord as they do, Psalm 60. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom, Petra? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it's he who shall tread down our enemies. We talk about psalms of ascent, psalms that Jews making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, ascending Jerusalem's the city on a hill, ascending up, would sing on their way. This is sort of a psalm of descent. This is a psalm of, of fleeing. God help us. You're the only one who can. We cannot help ourselves. And again, if disagree and we can still be friends. I'm not dogmatic about this. But, but I think it's from there, from Petra, that Israel repents and cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who, who, who says the words of Isaiah 53, we esteemed him stricken, but by his stripes we will be healed. And when that happens, Jesus returns. Hosea 5.15, Jesus said, I'll return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. And when they do, when they do, let's go back to the timeline. We're here, the end of the tribulation and the return of Jesus. <clears throat> now, if I get further on on skinny branches, I think that Jesus not only returns in response to the cry of his people in Petra, I think he returns to Petra where the remnant is praying and then makes his way to Jerusalem. No, 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 Patrick. I've read where Jesus returns to Jerusalem. He lands on the Mount of Olives, earthquakes and, 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 and topography changes and rivers flow the other way. And, and that might be true. But in a couple weeks, if you want to join us on Wednesdays, we're going to be in Isaiah 63. And Isaiah 63 says something provocative. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Edom, Petra. Who is this? This is someone writing from the perspective of Jerusalem. Who is this that I see approaching from the east? This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Answer. That's the question. Answer. I. Who is it? It's me. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
And then the question comes again from Jerusalem. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I think it's because Jesus is coming from battle, liberating the captives encircled in Petra and on his way to defeat the armies of Antichrist that are likewise encircling Jerusalem. Not dogmatic about it. Either way, while this is happening, repentance is spreading because Israel is realizing that Jesus is Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul said all of Israel will be saved. He didn't say instantaneously. I think it begins in Petra. It spreads to Jerusalem because revival spreads, right? Zechariah 12, we read about revival coming to Jerusalem. I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Better translation, they'll look unto me whom they pierce. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. If God's not, sorry, if God is done with Israel, then what the heck is Zechariah talking about? Whether I'm right about order of operations or not, Petra, then Jerusalem, Jerusalem, then Petra, Jesus returns, defeats Antichrist and his armies. And we end up here on the timeline at the return of Christ And very shortly afterwards, the millennial reign, the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus, begins. There's actually, you don't see it here, there's a 75-day gap between the return of Jesus and the kingdom. Bunch of stuff happens there, sheep and goat judgments that we read about in uh, uh, Matthew 25. Another thing that happens is Jews begin flooding back to Israel. And eventually everybody does because that's where Jesus is. But almost immediately after the defeat of Antichrist, after the repentance of the Jewish people and their recognition of their Messiah, this tremendous influx of believing Jews to Jerusalem. I'll bring them back. They shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 8, 7 and 8. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. What do they do when they get there? Worship, obviously, because Jesus is there. They also reign with Christ over the world. Reign with Christ. I thought that was us. I thought that we returned with Jesus to rule and reign with Jesus. We do. He said, you'll rule over cities. But Micah 4.2 tells us in in other passages that the Jews will have an opportunity to participate in the government also. The law, Micah 4.2, the law will go forth from Jerusalem. Justice will be administered in Jerusalem. Why does the kingdom need justice? I thought only believers were in the kingdom. Only believers start the kingdom. The sheep and goat judgment takes care of that. Only believers enter the kingdom. But believers who aren't in their glorified bodies will get married to other believers, and they'll have unbelieving babies because no one is born believing. And so justice is necessary. And the Jewish people will have a part in administrating that justice. From there, the kingdom continues for a thousand years. A thousand literal years? Yeah, Bible says so six times in Revelation 20. A thousand years of restoration. A thousand years where the world isn't perfectly but substantially restored to what God originally intended. Peace, justice, harmony, tranquility, long life, prosperity, especially for Israel. Justice will dwell in the wilderness, Isaiah 32, 16. Righteousness remains in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, the effects of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. How do I know that this is yet future? Because it's never been true in the past. Since Isaiah wrote that 700 years before Jesus, Israel has never lived in secure dwellings and quiet resting places. Not once, not ever. But in the kingdom they will. For a thousand years, there'll be restoration. For a thousand years, there'll be rejoicing. The whole world will be rejoicing. The the, the trees and and, and, and the rocks will clap their hands, we read. But the greatest rejoicing is the rejoicing of Israel. Isaiah 61, I'll greatly rejoice in the Lord. Israel speaking. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What is Israel rejoicing over? Condition of the world is is, is an easy answer. Long life, prosperity, peace. 
But that's not what Isaiah just said. It's not the condition of the world that they're rejoicing over. It's the condition of their souls. We're the bride of Christ. We read those verses and we recognize ourselves in them. We say, hey, we're cloaked with the garments of righteousness. But we're the bride of Christ. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. And when Jesus returns, they're reunited, reconciled, remarried, and rejoicing. On Wednesday, I talked about this restoration, and I said it's the culmination of a romance, which would work because romance starts with R. <laughs> but at the, by the way, if you doubt it's a romance, read Hosea. But at the heart of the romance is another R, and this is where we, this is where we stop. This is, this is where we end up this morning. At the heart of the romance is reconciliation. Christ came to reconcile the world to himself. And, and we read that and we put ourselves in the middle of it because that's how we are. We're self-centered that way. And, it's, and, and that's not wrong. That's not true. It's just, it's just not all that's true. Christ reconciling the world to himself means the world. Jew and Gentile. Christ reconciling the world to himself includes Israel. And he's entrusted to us today while Israel waits while Israel rejects and refuses and resists, God has entrusted to us today the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means a couple things. It means that we're entrusted with the gospel. We're the ones here to declare a gospel of reconciliation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the ministry of reconciliation goes further than that, I believe. I think it also includes being reconciled one to another. God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of one another are inexorably linked. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 18. God's forgiveness of us, our forgiveness of one another. You can't separate the two. As we've been forgiven, so shall we, so should we forgive. And we ought to be enough of an example to take that exhortation seriously because if we're honest with ourselves, we know who we were. We know our wickedness, our selfishness. We know the criminals that we were. We've been forgiven so much. That alone ought to be an incentive to forgive others. And Jesus says, yeah, as you've been forgiven, as you remember that you've been forgiven, go forgive. But, but see, sometimes it works against us because we look around and we look at others, and we say, well, he's worse than me. She was worse than me, longer than me. And, and them over there, forget about it. <laughs> we look around, we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. Comparison always does one of two things. Makes us feel better or makes us feel worse. Comparison never gives us an accurate picture of who we are. We start to look around, and, and we start to decide, well, you know, he's that wicked, she's that wicked, they're that wicked. Of course God forgave me, because I'm not like them. I'm not that bad. Compared to them, I'm pretty good. Said at the beginning of chapter 9, that's why it's so important to have a right understanding of Israel. I don't see the connection, Patrick. If God is done with Israel, then Israel must have done something unforgivable. If God is done with Israel, that means he's not forgiving Israel. If God's done with Israel, Israel must have done something that cannot be forgiven. Okay, if that's true, if Israel did something that cannot be forgiven, there must be things that are unforgivable. And as soon as you tell me there are things that are unforgivable, I'm going to look at people and say, well, you did one of them. <laughs> and you did one of them. And I don't need to forgive any of you. There's stuff that's not forgivable. Look at God in Israel. As we wrap up this morning, look again at Israel. If, if, if your own past, if your own wickedness, if your own testimony isn't enough to convince you of the enormity of God's grace, look at Israel. 
We said at the beginning, however gracious we think God is, he's more so. However good we think he is, he's better. However merciful we think he is, we're we're barely getting started. But look at God's heart for Israel. Rejecting her Messiah. Having been the beneficiary of the law and the prophets and, and, and God's presence dwelling among them and the feast days and the sacrifices, all of them, even the tabernacle itself, anticipating Jesus, picturing Jesus. No one more advantaged than Israel rejects Jesus. And God says, and I'm going to forgive you. Handed God's own son over to be crucified. And God says, I'm not done with you. And that should remind us as we look at each other and as we look at people in our past and as we look at people in the world who do heinous things, egregious things, hurtful things. There's nothing that God will not forgive. There's nothing, nothing that he will not give us the grace to likewise forgive. The bigger our picture of God is, the greater our understanding of grace is. And the the more we're willing to lay hold of that grace and minister to that grace, the closer we get to God and the more clearly people see God in us. Oh, Father, how we need your grace. How we need your eyes to see. How we need your spirit to expand our concept of mercy. Lord, we ask for a fresh filling of your spirit. Come against our bitterness. Come against our our desire for vengeance. Lord, as we remember those those righteous, that that righteous anger that we have, the, the, the righteous hurts are the hardest ones to forgive, but the most important. Oh, Holy Spirit, Give us the faith, give us the mercy to resign our right for justice and to minister the grace that you've shown us, to minister the grace that you have shown us in your word you will have for Israel as your plan for them continues to unfold.